Welcome to Boiling Point, the podcast to motivate ever-evolving entrepreneurs and forward-thinking movement pioneers. Our hosts, filmmaker Greg Hemmings and executive coach Dave Vale, are turning up the heat in the world's business communities. Our interviews with entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers are raising the temperature of inspiration. Live from the hottest studio in this quadrant of the universe, here are Dave and Greg. Okay, Dave, we're back, and it was really good because the um, uh, I, I, I truly believe that all of our listeners think that we do this week by week by week, and there's a week in between. Uh, but I in think, reality, we just... I, I think they're on to us. We, we record half hour, half hour, half hour, which means we can, we're in this, this booth that long with each other. So it feels so good between two minutes of the last guest for you to open that door. <laughs> it feels great. Uh, <laughs> so, Dave, I've got... Um, a friend who I met at an event that you were supposed to be at, which was the choosing for the Wallace McCain Institute this year. Um, I don't know where you were. You were at a bachelor party or something in Vegas, weren't you? Yeah. yeah. I'm Why sorry. did you do that? Well, I don't know. No, no, it was a birthday. It was birthday. 40th birthday, my brother's birthday. Okay. Yeah. Well, you no, missed out. I know. It's clearly. <laughs> because we, we had uh, Ross Laird, who uh, we've got on the phone. Um, I had the opportunity to hear him speak. Uh, at a workshop, and I uh, get to sit with him for dinner. And phenomenal guy with a great story and uh, an incredibly important message. So, Ross, welcome to the boiling point. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me, um, Ross. Why don't you do a quick introduction yourself for Dave and for the listeners' sake, uh, and and let's steer it towards uh, your current message, which is really focused around addictions and specifically technology addictions. But uh, sure. yeah, why, why don't you give us the intro? Sure. Well, my work is mostly about personal development in one way or another, helping people to work on um, issues around finding purpose and direction for adults, helping to develop themselves as adolescents, helping parents with kids. And all that work is really really the same in in a lot of ways. And, uh, and one of the things I find in working with all these different populations is that there are certain commonalities. And, And one of them, of course, is addiction. It looks different. Um, in different populations, you know, the, the addictions we see in adults um, over 30, say, tend to look a little different than the addictions we see in adolescents and in, and in, in kids. Uh, but one of the things that's been happening as I move around in these different populations is that um, the, the amount of pe- time people are spending on screens um, has really contributed a lot to the landscape of addiction. It's, it's almost as if there's been this wholesale migration from other kinds of addiction toward technology addictions. It's, um, it's a bit troubling, but also very interesting that, that the technology is ubiquitous. Everybody has a device with them all the time now. And so much of the ways in which people used to mediate their emotional life through substance use or through um, behavioral addictions or other kinds of things like that. So much of that seems to be moving now into the technology space. Um, and that's a, that's a new phenomenon. It's interesting and new. Ross, um, so I, and I, as Greg pointed out, I missed, I missed your uh, presentation and workshop, but I did actually hear quite a bit about it. So it obviously, you know, the message really resonated. What, what got you into this space? Like, what was it that um, attracted you to this, you know, this idea of addiction? And, and, then, and then all of a sudden, you know, kind of, it sounds like this, uh, you know, it's kind of crystallized or maybe not uh, around technology mm-hmm. addiction. 
Well, if you asked 100 people who work in the field of addiction what got them into it, 99 of them would say that they grew up in a family where there was addiction. And one person would be, I don't know, oddly out. Um, like most people who work in this field, I grew up in a, in a family where there was lots of addiction. Lots of people died from addiction. Um, my mom in particular um, struggled with alcoholism. Her whole life died from alcoholism. And... And like a lot of people who grew up in that situation, it leaves a mark, it it leaves a legacy. And there's really two paths to that legacy. One is to um, grapple with uh, carrying on the family tradition, which is what a lot of people do who grew up in families where there's addiction. They just kind of pick it up themselves and it becomes a part of their lives and the, the legacy gets passed down, which has led to a lot of speculation about whether addictions are inherited. They're not. They're really learned by kids. And, and the other the other pathway of that legacy is to become interested in how to how to heal the heal the situation, how to heal the family, how to heal ourselves, and how to live a life that is not shadowed by addiction. And so, like a lot of people who get into my field, um, I chose that path. I, I was very interested in my own um, my own development, uh, ways of um, avoiding the fate of so many people in my family. And uh, I moved in the other direction. But really, one way or the other, you know, I'm still living inside the world of addiction. It just looks a little different for me. Yeah, and <clears throat> what uh, for for the sake of the listeners, uh, the the workshop that you uh, put us through, Ross, is really interesting because we are a group of I, I don't know how many people are in that room. Let's say I don't know forty people. I I, I can't remember exactly. Um, and you're talking to a group of highly engaged, uh, high-growth entrepreneurs, most of which are in the tech field. Uh, mm-hmm. so, and, and most of which who in, enjoy drinking and uh, everything else that, that, that comes with that. You touched on a lot of different types of addiction that that room would probably you know, put their hands up and say, yeah, I struggle with this or I don't struggle with it mm-hmm. or I think I struggle with it. Um, and I think the most re- res- resounding uh, part of this was saying, you're, you and your kids are becoming addicted to screens, you know, yeah. and, and to shift that idea of what everybody th- thinks addiction is when we talk about drugs and alcohol but, uh, or pornography or whatever it might be, shifting it over to it's actual screen time. Uh, why don't we jump into that for a few minutes there, Ross, because it is so true. We're, we have that little piece of machinery in front of us at all times. Culturally, we're expected to respond to communications on the spot. Um, It feels like it's an addiction that we're forced into, which I know is not true, but it's a pretty hard one to avoid. So yeah, let's, uh, let's hear what you've been learning about the, about the screen time addiction. Well, I, I, the question that comes up immediately once we enter into that field is what's addiction? How do we define addiction? I mean, because we're spending all this time on the devices and on our computers and with technology, how, how do we, how do we distinguish between regular normal healthy use and addictive use? And that's actually pretty straightforward. It's not so much about the amount of time in terms of addiction. It's about what we use the time for. So, A lot of people in the field of addiction think of addiction as a kind of strategy of emotional management. So we need to do this behavior in order to keep ourselves centered, to keep ourselves present. And so when we think about technology, obviously there's a healthy use for technology. There there are wonderful tools that help us do all kinds of things. 
And then there's this slow slide into something that's a little different. And that can look a couple of different ways with technology. That can look like the, the binge watching that people do of television now online, especially with Netflix. It can look like um, hyper immersive, hyper intensive gaming, especially for young people, especially for young men. It can look like the kind of slow browsing where people just zone out in front of the screen for hours looking at, um, you know, review sites or reading news even or doing those kinds of things. It's, it's this behavior that takes us away from being present to ourselves emotionally and being able to be aware of uh, how we're handling our stress or how we're doing in our relationships, what's happening in our families, what's happening in our communities, those kinds of things. So what we find is that when people start to have the ability to access the screen whenever they want, it's very easy to slide into these kinds of behaviors that used to require an extra step, it used to require us to leave the house or used to require us to go to buy something or, or whatever. But now it's just there and we're vulnerable to it. Our, our nervous system in particular in the, in the body has, has a vulnerability to, to this kind of thing. And so there's a, there's a very rapid growth of the addictive kinds of behaviors, especially for young people. And that's where it's most vulnerable. A lot of research has been done to show that uh, young kids in particular really shouldn't be exposed to screens of any kind uh, before the age of about three. So nothing, no television, no screen, no computer. And that adolescents uh, really need to be mindful of keeping their recreational screen time down to something like 30 to 60 minutes a day. Um, so that they don't, because they're particularly vulnerable to addictive behavior as well, in, in all ways, not just the screen ways. So we, we have a conversation about addiction when it comes to alcohol and drugs, right? We talk to our kids, we, have, we talk to people in our communities, and we have, it's not exactly a handle on it, we have a notion of what addictive behavior looks like and what healthy behavior looks like, particularly with alcohol. But we don't have that conversation with screen time, we also don't have it with marijuana, which is another issue. But but we're so new with the technology addiction issue that we haven't had a chance to develop a conversation in our society about what health looks like. And because we don't have that conversation and because we're living in a time when stress is higher than it's ever been for people um, and the rates of depression and anxiety are just skyrocketing, people are looking for ways to cope with these challenges and the screen is right there and it'll do it for you. You know, um Man, it's, what you're what you're describing really, yeah, it, it hits home. You know, and it, it, you start to think about yourself and your family as you're describing this, Ross. And I think something that really opened my eyes to it was um, was some of Daniel Goleman's work. I don't, I don't know mm-hmm. if, if you, you, I'm sure you're familiar with Daniel Goleman, but his his last book, uh, Focus: The Hidden Power of Excellence, or something like I can't remember the exact title, but he talked about this inner focus, other focus, and outer focus, and um, the fact that the people's ability to, to, to self-monitor and their self-awareness, he, he, he really makes, a, uh, I think, a quite a compelling argument that, that our use of technology is, just, is, is actually causing our brains to, to develop differently. And I'm, I'm just kind of paraphrasing or what I took from the book. But this idea that we're, you know, like you said, it's ever-present, it's ubiquitous, it's always there. Yes. And so we don't and have it, to connect with people in the same way because if we're sitting in an uncomfortable situation, we can just start hitting our phone. Right. Or, you know what I mean? So do you want to tell me more about that? 
Yeah, we we have you know something like two hundred thousand years of modern human evolution uh, that have predisposed us for certain kinds of behaviors: being with people, talking with people, doing things with people, making things with our hands, communicating verbally and in person. We've evolved for a certain kind of environment. We have not evolved one whit for technology and for screen time, and we're not going to anytime soon. So. The, the the screen technology is is in a way an anti evolutionary path for us. And and the the path that we have evolved for involves this kind of daily immersion in activities which promote in particular self regulation. The ability this kind of more contemporary term for what we used to call willpower or attention or self-discipline. Self-regulation is the ability to modulate the nervous system and our consciousness and our mindfulness, the ability to, to be present and to make healthy choices about what kind of activities we're going to do at any given moment with people or with ourselves. And and there's a, there's a very well-established and very delicate development of self-regulation from childhood up through adulthood. And and the the ability to develop a, a robust set of skills in self-regulation is really the hallmark of successful people. They they tend to be mindful. They tend to to listen well. They tend to communicate well. They tend to to manage their impulses well. All these things are aspects of self-regulation. And at particular moments in childhood and adolescence, uh, under five for kids, and about. Well, about 12 through 25 for adolescents. Uh, these are the ages at which self-regulation is developed and established. And if if something gets in the way of that, uh, any lots of things can get in the way. Tra- emotional trauma can get in the way. Physical trauma, addiction, and now technology addiction can get in the way of of devel- the development of self-regulation. And so what's happening now is. We're, we're exposing kids in a very wholesale fashion to, to a whole bunch of time that takes away from their self-regulation development. And that is bound to have um, an effect. We, we're already seeing that effect. Uh, young people are reporting, young people in their 20s are reporting that um, they're experiencing very high rates of depression and anxiety, especially university students. And these rates are inexplicably high, the highest they've ever been. And that's probably a result of the fact that um, anxiety management and and mood regulation are aspects of self-regulation. And, and if our self-regulation is not well-developed, we're going to have trouble with mood regulation and anxiety regulation, and that leads to depression and anxiety problems. So. So the, the currently very high rates of, of mental health difficulties among young people are probably mostly attributable, not, not completely, but mostly attributable to this massive experiment with um, unregulated screen time in our society over the last, what, decade or so. So, so what is the, now, Greg, you're, you're talking to two guys uh, who have young children. Mm-hmm. Right, and Greg, you can't help but think of how the yep. impact we're, yep. we're we as role models probably are having Absolutely. our kids a and b and I and it's and it's there's an it's an interesting gender thing here too. I read another book called Boys Adrift, and it was really interesting to see how mm-hmm. like my daughter has very little interest in you know other than being with her brother and watching him play. My son could sit on this all day on the screen, sure. yeah, yeah, like and play video games, and he just loves it. And it's like and it's it's kind of it's to be honest, it's a little bit frightening. So what yes. so what do we 
and, and so what so what we've I mean rather than go into what we've done we're, we're mindful we're aware we're trying to monitor we're also you know the reality is that it can be somewhat social and it's not all bad in my mind but um, no, you know and, and but like in anything right like you know a drink in my mind isn't bad but you know 20 drinks is not good yes so yes. so what it's, it's the same yeah so what how, how do you how would a family a young family like how or how would you what would your counseling be to 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 parents who want to help their kids um you know with that self-regulation which is a real a core component of emotional intelligence which is as you say critical to to, to success in life yeah. well i think a couple of things one one is to recognize something you said at the outset which is that this is not all bad that we we're not necessarily saying that we should get rid of the technology or never use it. There's, there's a healthy range. There's a healthy amount. And the healthy amount is what serves our development as people, what gets us further in the direction of where we're going, including recreation. There's a, a really important role for recreation. We shouldn't say that we should never game or we should never use our technology for recreation. The, the situation with young people is, is a little bit uh, complex. Yeah. Although... Although we do send, tend to see these, um, these what, tendencies in young people between the genders, it's really difficult to draw rules about that. One thing we can say, though, is that um, young people in particular use technology to fulfill their uh, emotional needs, what they're searching for and what they need. And the example that I see most is with young men. And it's this notion of gaming as a highly intensive, very exciting, um, quest-based activity that has high risk involved in it. So a lot of the uh, immersive gaming uh, um, that, that young men involve themselves in have, have these kinds of components. And, and they're searching for that. They need that. There's something about their emotional development that requires this level of risk, this level of engagement, and this level of intensity. They're doing it in the online sphere because they do not have an analog in the real world. My experience has been that if they have something equivalent in the real world, they'll choose that. Because it, it is always, so far, it's always going to be more immersive and more interesting, more exciting uh, in the real world than it is online, even though the online environment can be super exciting. Um, so what I've found is that uh, young people will choose a real-world activity provided it matches the emotional needs, um, it, provided it fulfills the emotional needs as well as what they're doing in the online space. If it, if it does so, then they'll be more attracted to it in the real world. And, and of course, because all these kind of activities in the real world have physical activity attached to them, um, they're, they're better for our, for our development. So, so let, let, let's compare two things. So let's compare high-intensity gaming, uh, high-intensity war gaming, let's say. Let's compare that to something intense in the real world, such as rock climbing. So high-intensity gaming in the real world is exciting. Uh, sorry, in the virtual world is exciting. Um, it's intense. There's, there's the apparent sense of high risk. Um, you can get very involved and very excited in this work, in this play. Um, nothing is happening in the body to, to practice self-regulation. You're just sitting in a chair. And 
um, the excitement is flowing through the body, but it's not matched with any physical activity that is about problem solving or creativity uh, with the body or being able to do physical work. So there's a, there's a bit of a gap there in terms of nervous system development. And the virtual space can never fulfill the developmental needs of the young person in the nervous system, which are about the body, because the body's not doing anything other than sitting in a chair. Let's let's take the other part of this equation. Let's take the rock climbing experience. The rock climbing experience for most young people is very exciting, very intense, high risk, very scary. It's it's very straightforward to create a much more intense experience on the rock face than it is uh, in the digital space, for sure. No matter how intense gaming can become, uh, it can never come remotely close to matching um, the experience of being, you know, 50, 100, or 1,000 feet up in a rock face and, and looking down. So the difference is that the, the experience of climbing up the rock is a full-body experience. It engages all the senses. It requires uh, the development of skill with the entire body, and it requires constant practice of self-regulation so, so that you do well, so that you succeed, and it's safe. It's a super risky activity um, if it's not done um, I mean, even if it's done with all the safety equipment, um, there's the perception anyway that climbing is super, super risky, even though ultimately it's not. Actually, climbing is a fairly safe activity in the world today. So, so what we're looking for is allowing young people to find activities in the real world that give them the same emotional hit provide the same opportunity for skill development emotionally, provide the same level of self-regulation development as their activities in the digital space. If we can help them to do that, then they'll develop better, more mindfully, more carefully, more successfully. The gap is that a lot, a lot of young people now are just adrift. They, they, they have a lot of free time, and the free time is filled with digital activity. There isn't a lot of stuff in their community, necessarily, that's helping them to be out in the world. Uh, most parents now work, mo- both parents for both, most families. So kids, you know, kids between 11 and 15 or so are often at home by themselves, you know, during the latter part of the day, just trying to figure stuff out. And we don't have community mentors anymore who take kids out. Uh, we don't have grandparents as much uh, taking kids out and doing things. So there's a, there's a way in which kids have kind of been left on their own in the last generation or so. And technology has come in to fill that space, and that's a problem. That's so interesting, too. I, I think about that often because in our generation, <clears throat> I, I picture myself back when I was in grade 3, grade 4, grade 5, which were incredibly awesome outdoors years for me. Um, I did have a parent at home. Um, so when I got back from school, you know, it was straight back outside. Um, we, you know, being in Boy Scouts was the thing that everybody did, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, being out uh, building tree houses and taking our mountain bikes and, you know, far, far, far deep into the woods at that young age was totally acceptable back then. Yes. I feel today there's so much pretend fear or misguided fear from timid parents, which doesn't make sense because... We're talking about parents in our generation um, who actually were able to grow up in that. But, you know, it's almost like you see a kid bombing down the street on a mountain bike and you're like, oh, be careful. Or, you know, my little daughter climbing a, a tree uh, and like my my initial response is like, oh, my gosh, what's, what's going to happen if she falls? We need to shift that as a culture because really, if we look back further, what are our barriers to allowing these, uh, you know, these young people to experience you know, the, these emotional needs in the real world, 
I think yeah. it's fear of our generation, you know, yes, for is. some weird reason, because we went through it and we survived it and we loved it. Like uh, the yeah. amount of adventure and crazy, insane things that I used to do. And we didn't wear helmets when we were no. bikes. Like the thought Heck of that no. was like so didn't crazy. Wear, we didn't wear seatbelts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think like a lot of things, there has been um, an overbalancing of that. Uh, a lot of us did did things when we were young that were really unsafe, and not everybody survived those. And and as we grew up and became parents, we thought about making sure that our kids weren't exposed to the same kinds of risks. And I understand that. But like a lot of things, we've gone a bit too far in in the direction we wanted to go. Now there are parents who are not letting their kids crawl on the floor because of the perception that the floor is dirty and will expose yeah, them to that to illness you know if your kids don't crawl they can't develop that's that's the deal and so so there is a a kind of hyper hyper vigilance or or hyper protectiveness that's happening in society a lot right now even though the risks are going down you know the risks Mm -hmm. of being abducted for example for kids have gone down dramatically so so there's a perception and a reality and and i do think we need to do more to help kids be involved in real-world activities. And, and my experience is universal in this sense, that when I've had the opportunity to work with young people who spend a lot of time outdoors or or not even outdoors, but doing activities that are engaging and purposeful, that they find to be engaging and purposeful uh, beyond the digital space, they, they always prefer those to digital environments. I mean, let's face it, we're a long way from digital environments matching the real world. The, the digital environments can be can be really interesting, but they're still just this two-dimensional space. And even when we, even when everybody's walking around with an Oculus Rift on, um, it's still going to be uh, a pale comparison to the real world. And I think that's fair, and I think it's right, at least for now. We've evolved for this three-dimensional real-world experience, and we shouldn't be so quick to abandon our evolution. That's who we are. Uh, Ross, this is great, and this this brings us down to the uh, the end of our podcast. But I feel like we could talk for another three hours on this topic. So I I almost feel like uh, uh, maybe a year down the road, it'd be nice to have you back on the podcast to almost see where we've evolved because you know the acceleration of technology is just going yeah. so fast that it would be really cool to. Um, to touch base on this again. Well, I'd, I'd be happy to do that, and this landscape does change rapidly. Um, every year that goes by, there are new risks, new challenges, new addictions, new issues to grapple with, and it's, it's as you say, a, a rapidly moving environment. Ross, thank you so much, man, and uh, really look forward to meeting you again in person sometime soon. Yeah, and before you go, All Ross, right. um, how can people learn more about you? Like, where, where can they end, end, end this topic? They can go to my website, rosslaird.com. So that's R-O-S-S-L-A-I-R-D.com. Awesome. Thanks awesome. so much, Ross. Really nice meeting you. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thanks for the chat. Take care. Okay. Bye. It's uh, it's sobering, pardon the, uh, <laughs> the reference, to think, because I don't think my kids spend a lot of time on the screen, uh, but you know what? It's a great babysitter. So I, I, am, I am a perfect example of what we're talking about. Half hour in the morning while we're getting breakfast ready, half hour at night, so... But that's an hour of waked, of being awake, that at least that my kids are in front of the iPad, and they're watching really educational things on Netflix and all this sort of thing. But we didn't have that as kids. We had different things like go out and play, come back, come back when when dinner or breakfast is ready, you know. So it's not that it's a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a, a new reality. 
and I, I love I love that he is a champion of this thought. Like, let let's be conscious of this. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. No, no, you're it's sobering is that you nailed it. I think um, it's and and to me, you know, I, really what he. I mean, I guess what I took away is that he's he's um, he's really promoting. Uh, like a, a kind of a whole holistic life, yeah, of moderation. You know, too. Yeah, yeah. That, that includes you know all sorts of things, um, which and and you know gaming or or the video screen might be one piece of it. Um, so it's just trying to wrestle with that and make sense of it mm-hmm. and and help our kids make good choices for themselves. You know what I mean? Like because you know as your kids get older, you you start wanting to put the the, the control back into them, and and I I always get concerned about <clears throat> being regulating too much for my kids mm-hmm. because then you know it almost becomes a more attractive option um so it's just anyways this is a fascinating topic i agree with you we got to get in touch with him again that was very cool and i'm sorry to have missed his his uh his his talk his yeah. speech yeah yeah i know his, it, it, his, it his workshop so but thanks for excellent. thanks for getting him in great right on okay we'll see you next week dave all right man cheers thanks for checking out this episode of boiling point remember to rate and subscribe to us on itunes and follow us on twitter at Boiling Point Pod. To see more from Dave Vale, check out leadershipunleashed.ca or visioncoachinginc.com. And on Twitter, at Dave underscore Vale. And to catch up with Greg, visit hemmingshouse.com and at Greg Hemmings on Twitter. Thanks for listening and remember, keep that pot boiling. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback.